This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. This is a story that we really started talking about last week with our next guest. And we've been talking about it with him for years now. And it's really ratcheted up even over the past 24 to 48 hours. We're talking about Hong Kong and China, its relationship, its relationship that crisis to the U.S. and the man we're talking about, Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. So, Andy, help us understand what has happened of late, because it seems to have accelerated pretty quickly this week and with some moves that are going to be hard to walk back. What do we need to know about what's going on in Hong Kong? Yeah, well, Jason, you're absolutely right. Things have come uh, to a head um, in Hong Kong with the National People's Congress, China's parliament, uh, passing uh, national security legislation, which is going to be imposed uh, on Hong Kong, bypassing the Hong Kong legislature. Um, and this is very clearly a prelude to a broad uh, and very decisive crackdown on the democracy protest, pro-democracy protests um, in Hong Kong. And in response to that, the United States has determined that Hong Kong no longer enjoys autonomy or a sufficient level of autonomy from China. Um, and we don't quite know uh, what the implication of that is, but it could mean anything from the U.S. revoking uh, Hong Kong's special trading status with the United States to going after the assets of individuals responsible for that legislation, or indeed something broader like a, you know, a, an even broader decoupling in the financial sector, choking off the flow of funds into China, many of which are mediated through Hong Kong, which of course is one of the world's largest financial centers. Andy, as you know, Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam, she defended the legislation earlier this week, and she said, quote, it will not affect the legitimate rights and freedoms enjoyed by Hong Kong residents. Is she right? That's my first question. And what about this timing? Why is this happening? Is it because just of the protests or was this, you know, something that was going to come from China at some point? Well, actually, it was supposed to have come from Hong Kong. Uh, in Hong Kong, uh, administration was supposed to have put in place a national security law many, many years ago, um, but has been putting it off in the face of, of course, massive, widespread opposition uh, from all segments of uh, Hong Kong society. Hence, it was imposed, um, you know, with, with, without uh, any form of, of review um, uh, by, um, by the, 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 the territory's legislature. Um, so as far as Carrie Lam is concerned, saying that, you know, this isn't a threat to the rule of law, uh, we heard something similar from her predecessor, um, Tong Chi Hua. Um, so you see, the, the, the essence of this law is it's going after um, uh, secession, mm -hmm. terrorism, um, you know, uh, uh, sedition, um, collusion with foreign forces. Um, and so Tong Chi Hua said, well, you know, as long as you're not engaged in acts of ter terrorism, you're going to be fine, which is essentially what Carrie Lam seems to be saying. Um, the pro 
problem is that these terms in the Chinese judicial lexicon can mean just about anything that the authorities want them to mean. And they're used in China to go after a huge, broad array of dissidents, um, you know, NGO people, uh, uh, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, you know. Um, and so these are catch-all terms. Furthermore, um, the legislation is going to be accompanied by a physical presence in Hong Kong of the security services from agencies from China, the Ministry of State Security, Ministry of Public Security. So, you know, it's not clear what degree of oversight or interpretation, if, if any, that Hong Kong courts will have over this new national security agency uh, law. At the very minimum, you can say that it will, it will exist side by side with law that is, deter that is there to protect freedom in Hong Kong. And it will also uh, include this shadowy parallel presence of Chinese security forces operating side by side with the Hong Kong police force. So, Andy, to be a little bit parochial about this from, from my perspective, I think about our listeners, many of whom work in and around Wall Street. They work in the financial industry, the financial services industry. If you're sitting at J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, any number of global banks, you have a big presence in Hong Kong. What are you thinking about right now in terms of your people who are there now? And maybe more importantly, how do you think about Hong Kong in the near to midterm future? Yeah, so, uh, you know, many details of this legislation, uh, you know, are, are yet to be revealed. We don't know how it's going to be implemented. Um, you know, will it be swift? Will it be brutal? Will it be hard? Will it be, you know, we, we, we don't know. Um, uh, I think probably if you're investing in Hong Kong right now, your immediate concern is about street violence, is about the chaos that's bringing the Hong Kong economy to its knees. You may even be somewhat relieved that there's legislation coming which could poten potentially uh, snuff that out and, and, and sort of revive Hong Kong as a, as a business center. Mm. If, you're looking for, if you're looking at it long term and you're thinking the degree to which Hong Kong is a financial center, and as I say, one of the world's great financial centers, the degree to which it is, it is founded upon the rule of law and the extent to which this national security legislation undermines that rule of law, then I think you're going to be very alarmed. Yeah. And at the very least, I think what you're going to see is a hedging behavior now by companies, financial services companies. Um, the ones that don't have to be there are probably going to start leaving. The big banks have to be there. They can't, they can't just take off and, and leave. But I think you will see a drain of businesses. You'll certainly see a drain, a, a drain of talent. The United Kingdom just, just today or yesterday announced that it was going to give additional visa rights to 300,000 Hong Kong British mm. uh, uh, passport holders, not full residency, but additional visa rights. Um, Taiwan has said that it will, it will offer shelter to Hong Kong people. So I think you're going right. to see a, a real outflow of talent. All right. Well, we appreciate your context. As always, Andy Brown, he knows so much about this. Editorial Director for Bloomberg New Economy. Joining us on the phone from New Hampshire. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. He has threatened to shut them down. Now President Trump says this will be a big day for social media and fairness as he is expected to sign an executive order aimed at Twitter and other tech giants. He's also singled out one specific Twitter employee for those fact-checking tweets. Let's get into this story because it just gets more interesting and kind of a hotter story each day goes by. Uh, Bloomberg News White House correspondent Josh Wingrove joining us on the phone on this Thursday. So Josh... We're going to get this executive order? 
Uh, it sounds like it's in flux. The press briefing is mm-hmm. ongoing, and the press secretary just said that they're continuing to work on this. You remember yesterday it was supposed to come last night, and today mm-hmm. they haven't really given a time. So it sounds like they're still working on it. The draft that is floating out publicly right now uh, sort of uh, targets uh, social media companies by kind of taking aim at that shield that they have on liability, the Section 230 protections that treat them as sort of a conduit rather than a publisher. Uh, sounds like they're going to try to rattle the cage somehow on it, but executive orders have murky authority at best. It is well short of legislation. And so, uh, you know, the actual impact is going to depend a lot on that sort of fine text. And again, we just don't know where it's going to land. Well, without being too silly about this, Josh, if I think about the relationship that the president of the United States, both as a candidate and now uh, as the leader of the free world, uh, has with social media and specifically with Twitter, you might say it's complicated. Um, he yeah. has relied heavily on it, uh, to say the least, and certainly has galvanized a lot of support, but also galvanized a lot of opposition. I mean, help us understand the politics of this, because the net effect might be good for him, might not be. How are folks around inside the Beltway and, and outside considering this? There is a long-running uh, grievance among conservatives that they think that social media and big tech treat them unfairly and target conservative voices unfairly. Trump has been sort of, you know, circling this issue on and off since the start of his presidency. And this t- sort of fact-check label that came on for the first time this week sort of blew it up again and, and pushed it to the front of his mind. But it's been there for a while. And so you, we've seen, we've seen, for instance, them target uh, this uh, particular uh, Twitter employee, Yoel Roth, who's the head of site integrity, essentially like protecting Twitter against bots and misuse. Uh, he's tweeted negative things in the administration uh, about the administration. And they're saying, look, how do you have an employee doing that while you're coming at us for, for, for lying? Uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, t- Twitter has, I guess, uh, taken steps to I guess, fact-check some of the president's tweets. You know, the ones that effectively accuse Joe Scarborough, the MSNBC host of murder, uh, have so far not been fact-checked at all. Uh, So, you know, this is, I guess, uh, in some ways, a red meat-based issue for the president, because many of his uh, voters and supporters believe uh, that Twitter and other sites uh, just, you know, aren't giving them a fair shake. What's amazing is I think some would say it's long overdue for these social media sites to be responsible about what's on their site, right, and do fact-checking. At the same time, you do wonder, you know, what the slippery slope is that we maybe go down here. Um, And I just do wonder, you know, it feels like regulators have backed off a little bit about, you know, focusing on social media companies. But I do wonder if we start to see Congress kind of jump back into the fray at this point. Great, great question. You know, uh, one of the questions that's also been raised is, you know, is it these uh, companies place to police truth? And, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily a partisan issue. And by that, I mean, I think you'd find some Democrats who think that who might be uncomfortable with the idea of handing Twitter and Google and the likes even more power over our lives than they have now to start deciding what is true or not. Uh, you know, uh, the way the press secretary put it is the president today, she said he, he wants to make sure Big tech does not stifle free speech. Now, this kind of backs him into a bit of a corner because the president can't be seen to be targeting Twitter too much uh, in fighting 
for free speech, because, of course, it would amount to censorship of Twitter in his fight against censorship. Uh, but, you know, that hasn't necessarily stopped him uh, in the past. So I, I think that we will see something come out. Uh, this uh, the, the draft order is not as harsh as, as Trump has made it sound, and it sounds like they're still wrangling over it. So whether the final order is, you know, more watered down or more beefed up, I think remains to be seen. Uh, but uh, I think it'll be a lobbying frenzy either way for big tech in Washington. I'm just yeah. going to say, Josh, it's definitely an election year. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. For Sometimes sure. we forget that amid everything else going on. All right, Josh Wingrove, White House correspondent for Bloomberg. We really appreciate your time. Great political context there. You know, we talked with Sarah Fryer yesterday. You can check that out on our podcast feed. But uh, this is important. It's important for us uh, to understand this. Uh, Twitter shares, by the way, they're down about 2.6% today after being down about the same amount yesterday. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So a group of super forecasters say a COVID-19 vaccine is still a ways off. In today's Business Week Economics, Business Week Economics editor Peter Coy joins us along with the CEO of that group that pulls all of those super forecasters together. He's Warren Hatch, CEO of Good Judgment. It's a company that maintains a global network of forecasters to make predictions for clients based on publicly available evidence. Peter's on the phone in New Jersey, Warren in New York City. Peter, set the stage for us. I love this story. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, everybody wants to know this. When are we going to have a vaccine? It's a question on everybody's mind now. So I uh, got a pitch, actually, from a PR person about Good Judgment, a company I was aware of, but I hadn't really looked at their website to see what they were saying about COVID-19. I was really curious. And, you know, I was surprised, actually, when I saw the results, how pessimistic they really were. It seemed like they're on the pessimistic end of the stuff you're hearing, but I thought, well, maybe they're right and all the, you know, companies and uh, epidemiologists and government officials are just champing at the bit a bit too much, getting a little over-optimistic. I said, this sounds like a story, so put something out. So, Warren, tell us about it. And by the way, I think super forecaster is one of the greatest descriptions that I've ever heard. Like to, to, to title, you know, to have the title like, yeah, I'm a super forecaster. Like, do you actually have that on your business card or is that just something you sort of throw around at cocktail parties? I'm just giving you a hard time, but it is cool. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Do you have you, a so cape? That's what we want to know. Do you have a cape? <laughs> uh, well, I think there is a cape on one of our stock photo images that we've used <laughs> in the past. Uh, and I could tell you that uh, the term um, super forecaster, um, super forecasters themselves are a little uneasy with 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 that. But now that I'm CEO of the commercial spinoff, boy, I sure recognize the value of the term. I'm all for it. Putting it on my business card's a great idea. <laughs> so what what did you find? Help us understand. You know, as you guys dug into this, because as Peter, you know, rightly said, this is running you know counter to what a, a lot of us are you know, hearing and reading uh, from maybe more optimistic folks? Yeah, so the way we approach these kinds of questions for clients and government and private sector and finances is we think in terms of probabilities. So rather than saying, well, a vaccine is unlikely or likely or absolutely for sure, those sorts of things, uh, but they're really hard to, to track, to evaluate, to interpret. So we use probabilities, numbers, 
that you can compare across different kinds of questions. So when will the U.S. economy recover? We're less optimistic than my old friend Steve Rusciuto. Uh, but also, when is a vaccine going to be widely available? And then we uh, create ranges so we can get a little bit more nuance. What's the probability that a vaccine will be in wide distribution by the end of this year? Right now, the super forecasters have pretty low odds in the single digits that that's going to occur. Now, that doesn't mean it won't. In a world of probabilities, you know, it's low, but we may see it. Uh, but, and by may, I mean like 6% probability. Um, so it's not zero, but the probabilities are much higher for a vaccine in wide circulation about a year from now. And uh, I can also say that uh, it, uh, the, the pessimism or the skepticism is less than what it was. Because hmm. one of the things that super forecasters will do is follow the news flow like we all do and, and, uh, and then quantify the impact of that news flow on their forecasts. And so some of the news that we have been seeing about possible successes in some of the vaccine research has been reflected in that. Now, they're not seeing much movement in the probability that we'll get a vaccine by the end of this year, but a vaccine by this time next year is, has moved up. Well, it's so fascinating. You know, uh, Peter, I feel like Jason likes to make references like this is going to be in billions, but I could see this being in billions, you know, down the road. It's like, you know, figuring out what's the likelihood of something happening or not happening. But I do think in a world where I was just in a conversation with a bunch of CEOs, there's just no data. And folks are saying you've got to throw out the old data points because they just don't apply to the future. You know, this kind of information can be very useful. Yeah, I mean, information, it's not like this is the answer. I mean, right. the, the Good Judgment Incorporated has had its share of mistakes, too. And when I talked to Philip Tetlock, who's a co-founder, University of Pennsylvania professor, and he was the first to say, look, it's rare that we're going to have, we're going to be way on one end, everybody's going to be way on the other, we'll be right and they'll be wrong. But on the other hand, if you're right 52% of the time in the stock market, for example, you could make a lot of money. So uh, you don't again. The 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 gold. The, the measure of success is not perfection. It's just being a, having a little bit of an edge. And I you know I'm willing to say that you know maybe these people, just because of their disciplined way of thinking, the fact that they don't have an uh, they're not emotionally tied to a particular answer or financially invested in a particular answer that they just want to make the very best estimate, makes them worth listening to. Yeah. Well, and Warren, it, it, we should note, you know, your background is in hedge funds. I mean, you, you helped co-found a hedge fund. You understand the research element. And so from an investment perspective, exactly the framing uh, that Peter just laid out is, is, I think, important for people to keep in mind, right? I couldn't agree more. And I wish I knew like 20 years ago when I got started in, in Morgan Stanley what I know now, because right. there are all these wonderful tools that can give you just a little bit of an edge here and there. And it's these little things that when you add them all together can add up to a pretty significant uh, outperformance relative to your peers. And that's, that's what it's all about. All right. Well, we really appreciate both of your time. Warren Hatch is the CEO of Good Judgment, joining us on the phone from New York City. Read more about him and his firm. He's a super forecaster. You can follow him on Twitter uh, at super forecaster. Peter Coy wrote the story 
in Business Week online. Mm-hmm. Peter Coy, of course, economics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Huawei continues to be in the news and owing in part to our continued uh, attention that we're paying to cybersecurity and also some headlines yesterday coming out of Canada. Here to discuss all that, Andy Purdy, Chief Security Officer for Huawei Technologies USA, joining us on the phone from Bethesda. Andy, really nice to have you back with us. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. So let's start in the news if we can. Uh, The CFO of Huawei, the parent company, uh, continues to be part of a, a big legal fight in Canada. Help us understand what's going on and, and candidly beyond the the legal issue here, sort of what it means for business, what it means for the brand at this point. Well, the effort against uh, Ms. Mong, our chief financial officer, is part of the overall effort the last couple of years by the U.S. government to carpet bomb Huawei uh, out of existence. And In terms of the impact on the company, the decision involving Ms. Mung and and the process for extradition will take uh, quite a number of months, um, if not years, uh, before there might be an actual trial in the Eastern District of New York. And we have great confidence in the legal systems of Canada uh, and the U.S. Uh, So we we feel like uh, she'll be vindicated uh, in the end. But right now, this, this campaign against Huawei... Uh, the recent ramping up of, of pressure on American companies' ability to sell to Huawei, even through international companies, mm-hmm. is going to have a tremendous negative impact on American jobs. You know, it's interesting, you know, that this is going on amid a week or two where we are seeing, once again, heightened tensions uh, and back and forth between the head of the United States, President Trump, and, of course, Chinese President Xi Jinping. And what, how do you see this? Uh, you know, you've got to run your business amid kind of all of this fury. And we're trying to figure out, is it rhetoric or is it going to turn into actions that ultimately impact both China and the United States? Well, there's certainly been an impact uh, on, on our company. Right. The impact was about $12 billion last year, and we haven't been able to estimate what the impact will be this year. Of course, it's, it's complicated by the added factor of, of the pandemic. But you look at the overall situation, the geopolitical situation between China and the U.S. is what we're talking about, and that's exacerbated now by the U.S. presidential campaign. So the, the, the competition among President Trump and uh, uh, former Vice President Biden to outmaneuver uh, the other in terms of anti-China rhetoric, kind of a new red scare kind of thing, um, indicates that, that this battle is, is going to go on at least through the election. And there doesn't seem to be rational discussion and people don't seem to care about the fact that American jobs are going to be lost as a result. And can you quantify, you know, the the jobs piece of this? I understand that obviously things are complicated, but in terms of the pandemic, and it remains to be seen what the total economic impact is. But help us understand, you know, you guys have several offices ar- around the country here. What has it meant, and and maybe help us understand sort of the the one two punch, as it were, of this action and this. Uh, confrontation between the United States and China, as well as the pandemic. Synthesize that for us, if you can, Andy. Well, in terms of within the U.S., we have two issues. We have the issue of whether or not Huawei can sell to uh, American companies. And right now we're serving uh, parts of rural America. Uh, And the other issue is the ability of American companies, nearly 300, want to be able to sell to Huawei. So in terms of 
our global revenues, which last year, despite all this, were up about 19%, um, you know, we were impacted about $12 billion. Right. Um, but the, uh, the, the annual amount that we procure from American companies is not just to serve the, our customers in America. It, it's our global market. At, at its height, we had about 30 or 32% of all Huawei global components came from American companies, and they're primarily in the semiconductor industry. And you can see in the last couple of months, uh, and they can speak for it a lot better than, than I can, uh, that American um, semiconductor companies and their associations, trade associations, have basically been saying, look, the limitations on the ability of American companies to sell a Huawei, averaging about $12 billion a year, that is estimated to be between forty and 50,000 direct jobs, not to count the indirect jobs. And so the fact is, well, you know, we're fighting for our survival. Um, we're going to be okay, uh, and we would like to continue to buy from American companies, and, and I, as an American, want to be able to see those jobs uh, continue. If we have to, we'll go elsewhere, and then we won't come back, and those American jobs will go away, and, and that's not going to help America. And in the long term, it's not going to hurt Huawei. And the, the strategy, you talk about the bigger picture, the strategy is that the U.S. wants to hurt Huawei to hurt China because they are, are afraid of the rise of China economically and militarily. So, so that's really at the heart of it. And so instead of promoting greater innovation uh, technology by America, they're trying to hurt Huawei. And that's not going to help America vis-a-vis China in terms of a long-term competition, which is which but, is very important. Andy, to be fair, and unfortunately, we've only got about 45 seconds here, but I mean, nothing ever happens in a vacuum, right? And I know as part of the latest, you know, trade agreement, China was supposed to be buying a certain amount of energy products and so on and so forth. And that not isn't necessarily happening. And you see China now, you know, in terms of what it's doing in Hong Kong, there's a lot of uncertainty and moves on both sides. What's the responsibility of China in all of this? And unfortunately, just got about 30 seconds here. Well, I mean, we're independent of the China government. We're an independent company, probably the largest privately owned company in, in, uh, in China. Right. So we can contribute to competition and, and job growth. So the conduct of the, of the China government is different than us. And I may not like what they do, and I may not like what the U.S. government does, but okay. that's separate from us. Well, I wish we had more time. And Andy, um, you've been so gracious to you know keep coming back so we can continue this conversation. So I look forward to engaging with you in the future. Andy Purdy at Huawei Technologies USA. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us. I'm excited to have back with us Doug Sioka, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $775 million in assets under management based in Leewood, Kansas. And that's where we find him on the phone on this Thursday. So, Doug, how are you? How's it going? I'm well. How are you and Jason? We're doing okay. Week we're 11. All right. Here we are. Yeah, week 11. We're making our way uh, through it. What's the, what's the scene on the ground in Kansas? Uh, the sea of the ground is good. I mean, it's, it's wet today, but, but, uh, that's pretty par for the course this time of year. And, and, uh, but things are good. You know, I, I, I think, um, 
you know, in general, broadly speaking, clients are are uh, are well. They're they're optimistic, and I think, but deservedly so. There's a lot of good things that have developed. I think I was on with you guys in the first week of yeah. April, and yeah. shoot, so much has happened since then. And and I think, by and large, uh, very positively predisposed. Well, okay, until. <laughs> President Trump and President Xi started going at it again when it comes to U.S.-China. You know, a headline crossed the Bloomberg at 3.17 p.m. Eastern. Trump says he's going to hold a news conference on China Friday. And the rally that we saw, uh, stocks went from their highs and took a leg down. We're just a little bit lower. But nonetheless, investors are nervous about this. Um, here's another big macro thing, macro story that we've had to deal with a lot, I feel like, Doug, over the last couple of years. Big deal in your world, or how do you see it? Well, I, I think incrementally, sure. I mean, you have to figure that last year we, we did see some thaw of the, the China-U.S. tensions in coordination with a Fed that had reversed course from its more hawkish posture at the end of 2018, and that combination really lit an explosive broad-based rally. So now geopolitical tensions are escalating, I mean, literally as of the last few weeks, maybe a couple months, and certainly the blame game at the start of the pandemic but if the geopolitical tensions are escalating, but we still have a Fed that's firmly committed to loose monetary policy, then I think the outcome of that um, uh, tension point is more than equal and opposite and favors the Fed. But keep in mind, I mean, this is a budding impediment that, that is likely to be more of a conflagration, it, at least is partially politically motivated, right? Because it seems like the one thing that both sides of the aisle can agree on is China is now public enemy number one of the United States, so who can be more hawkish? While Trump's in office, he's not going to miss an opportunity to be uh, coronated uh, that title. Hmm. And so do you just sort of stay put and, and ride this out here, Doug? Or, or what do you do as you're looking toward, I mean, we're almost to the point where we really are talking about the back half of the year. How do you synthesize this and feather it in with you know what we have still, which is a pandemic and a crisis and a health crisis and economy that has largely ground to a halt? Yeah, the economy has ground to a halt. Obviously, the market has done just the opposite, right, yeah. Jason, I think. And in the recovery is taken on almost warp speed proportions. And it's really the speed but not the magnitude that's surprising, just given the historical context of the market being a leading indicator of the economy. So you get to the point now when you say we've had fantastic monetary policy intervention. We've had fantastic fiscal policy intervention. We're kind of in a middling range, right? A lot of the early gains have clearly been made. Now we're at a point of inflection of where does the economy go from here to corroborate the market's move? So are there sectors of the market that still offer opportunity in strong consideration of what's taking place still on the geopolitical side? So it's just another element that has to go into the calculus of, of identifying strong expected return sectors within the stock and bond markets. I feel but like by no a, means do we think it's time to reverse course and raise cash. I was going to say, I feel like there's a lot, though, Doug, in that calculus right now. Oh, there's no question. There's no question. I mean, I think... Right. There's not only the economic, but the emotional. And I think when you go through in, in, in that the type of pandemic and, and the sort of that combination or, or um, coordination of fear that we experienced, it made it difficult to compartmentalize and sort of see through opportunity from the headlines, which were undoubtedly and, and deservedly very negative. So I think that's the thing that people are still struggling with as they look to commit new capital. And so what worries you the most here? Um, you know, I, I don't know that I'd, I'd prioritize any of the set of worries. I think more than anything, complacency. You know, complacency is a problem from the standpoint of um, 
false confidence in the curve flattening that's taken place, too quick as it relates to reopening economies, um, being negligent or ignoring data points that would obviously be in the, in the, in the broad-based uh, best interest of the collective American populace to go very slow. And I think what happens, right, is we all have this pent-up energy and optimism, and for, again, as I said earlier, with good reason, yeah. but, like, being very measured in sort of the allocation of our energy and our efforts as well as the allocation of our capital. So I'm curious, did you, were you putting a lot of money to get, you know, to work or new money put to work, you know, Doug, when we saw the sell-off? And have you, are you just kind of marking time right now? No, a little bit of a little bit of both. So, okay. like, we put money to work, but never with any probably in hindsight, Carol, not enough speed, right? I mean, certainly the the March twenty third bottom, which is held, we think it's going to hold. Uh, it's very obvious in hindsight where it was. You know, did we back up the truck to equities on the March twenty fourth? We didn't, but in mm. a very measured fashion, as it was appropriate for clients and sort of their risk profile and their ultimate long term objectives. But we're by no means falling off the throttle because if you think about what's happened, and certainly. When you look at the attribution of the index, well, the S&P is down 6 or 7% for the year, but the average stock of the S&P is still down 12 or 14%. And those are still the biggest 500 companies in the world. Yeah. So there's a whole subset of companies, particularly small cap, international, where they've seen considerably larger drawdowns, which we think make for even more attractive entry points. Yeah, especially if, if once we get on the other side of this, if, if consumers do come back, if the economy starts to reopen, um, with some kind of momentum, we certainly could see something more play out uh, when it comes to the equity markets. Um, oh, it will, right? I mean, well, and you think about, as mentioned, being optimistic. Like, we're so optimistic on the science. We're so optimistic on the American spirit. We're so optimistic on U.S. economy 2.0 or 3.0, whatever we're going to call this post-COVID construct. But there are going to be lots of changes in business and, therefore, changes in investment opportunities. But we always want to think in terms of marginality, Right. How many people have gone to your program and said, you know, we're never going to need commercial office space again, or <laughs> we're never going to have an attraction of living in or commuting to a big city? I don't agree with any of those statements in totality, but there are going to be subtle changes to that effect, and those should end up being very, very positive. Yeah. Now, it's a, it's a really... Uh... It's a really interesting point, and uh, we always love your optimism, Doug. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, it's really good to hear. Doug Sioka, Chief Executive Officer and Partner for Kavar Capital Partners, joining us on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. Carol? Well, a little realism, right? Like, yeah. you know, you do... Uh, like, I, I kind of got up this morning, I'm like, God, I, m- I miss taking trips. I <laughs> like, I was really thinking about it and thought, as soon as we can figure this out, you know, I kind of want to resume yeah. that part of our world. So it's just a case of figuring it out, making it safe. And I do think it'll be smarter and more constructive. I don't think people will necessarily, at least initially, jump on planes uh, as quickly as they used to. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, cloud bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts and of course you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m eastern on bloomberg radio or watch us on youtube by searching bloomberg global news